Brian McClanahan Show, episode 420. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Truly, you can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com mclanahanacademy.com it's always free to enroll you get a free class when you do enroll 10 myths of american history and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses i've got a sale running right now if you're listening to this podcast in the week of march 22nd it will run out very soon so you want to hop over there and get on my email list so you can get those coupons you can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. You get your book played if you want my autograph of one of my books. And one of those books is Southern Scribblings, which I am going to be talking about on this particular episode of the show today. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Wiz Liberty Classroom, where I teach there with Tom and a whole bunch of other great faculty members. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally, because that is the key to turning this thing around. We're not going to fix America from the top down. We have to fix it from the bottom up, and you got to do it at the state and local level first, because the states are the fourth pillar of government. And so, that said, I'm going to talk about a big issue. I've gotten several requests to do this, um, and it has to do with a new book out, Robert E. Lee and Me by Ty Sedgley. Now, Sedgley, in 2015, did a video for PragerU where he talked about the war, and he said it was all about slavery. That's it. It's also all about slavery. Sedgley has a Ph.D. in American history, and... He taught at West Point for years. He's now moved on to a different school. He's emeritus professor of history at West Point, um, and he's teaching at another school, and he's also been promoted to general. Now, first of all, Ty Sedgley has written this book, Robert E. Lee and Me, as a mea culpa. It's more of a long op-ed polemic than anything else. Shoddy research. I mean, I went through and I looked at all of his notes, most of the time, he's citing secondary sources, and he doesn't even cite them correctly. That's one of the main things. Um, and he's citing secondary sources that are all biased to his position. Now, he spends a lot of time citing Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind as some authoritative uh, hit book on Southern history, which is hilarious. I mean, he, what he's doing in that particular chapter is trying to tear down Gone with the Wind. This is all about the lost cause myth and blah, blah, And I think that the recent video that the Abbeville Institute put out on this by Phil Lee attacking Sedgley, and we've the Institute's got a couple other things going on with this in the near future, 
does a very good job of taking that part of it down. First of all, Sedgley has no conception of the bigger picture of American history here. Anyone that goes out and says that the South was the uh, creator of segregation is completely wrong. All you have to do is go out and read C. Van Woodward. I mean, look, uh, and Woodward was, was by no means a pro-segregationist in the 19, or middle of the, of the 20th century, 1940s, 50s, 60s. In any way, I mean, Woodward was a liberal, and he was teaching in an Ivy League school, and of course, he is one of the deans of Southern history. And Woodward accurately points out that, look, I mean, you Northerners who are lecturing the South on segregation need to understand this is something that was created in the North. In fact, you can go back and find the use of the word Jim Crow in Connecticut in the 1850s. They didn't use that in the South at that particular time. So Sedgley has no concept of anything. He's citing Charles Dew. He's citing James Lowen and Edward Sebesta. I mean, these people, <laughs> these people are unabashedly anti-Southern. Uh, now, do his his little book, Apostles of Disunion, which I should probably talk about at some point, is also in some ways a mea culpa that doesn't really it, it cherry picks. It's a, it's a bad book in a lot of ways because of that. And I'll also say this about Ty Sedgley: he has no conception of American constitutionalism, zero, and it's embarrassingly bad. One thing he does, he says, well, Robert E. Lee could have chosen a different path. And this is the, the modern uh, interpretation of Lee's decision to leave the United States Army and then, of course, join the Confederacy. Uh, and uh, uh, Alan Gelzo has also uh, done a lecture on this where he says, well, you know, there's a little delay here and all these things. And Lee was really committing treason because he didn't know if he was officially out of the army yet. He hadn't, his resignation hadn't been accepted, and he'd already accepted a role in the Confederacy, et cetera, et cetera. But Lee himself had said, look, I'm out. Now, the, the important part about this and that what all these people miss is that when Lee attended West Point, they were giving a textbook on the United States Constitution. It was by a man named Rawl. And Rawl had pointed out in this particular textbook that secession was entirely legal and possible. And we know the founding generation thought this because it was openly discussed. Look, in 1794, you have two Northerners telling John Taylor of Caroline they won out of the Union. Now, Taylor of Caroline was shocked by this. And, of course, Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address says, you know, this is not necessarily a good idea, but we shouldn't harass them about this. We know Northerners push for secession over Jefferson's election. We know Northerners push for secession after the Louisiana Purchase. We know they push for secession during the Hartford Convention. We know that abolitionists called for secession later on, but up till the 1820s, it was Northerners who were most vociferously supporting secession. And why? Because they thought they would never gain control of the federal government. That Southerners dominated it. And they would never have the levers of power. So you see, all of this is really about power. You can take any issue. I don't care what it is. Slavery, economics, states' rights. Take your, take your pick. At the end of the day, and even if we look at modern politics, why are Democrats so interested in expanding immigration in the United States? Well, because it gives them power. It's all about power. It doesn't matter the issue. It's about power.
And so we have this constant back and forth over power. And Sedgley said some things in this particular book that are just completely stupid. Calling Elizabeth Pryor the best biographer of Robert E. Lee, I've got an entire podcast on that where I ripped apart her book, and I'm going to do it again today because I think people need to hear this. I'm actually going to read a chapter out of my Southern Scribblings book entitled Robert E. Lee versus Twitter Historians. This is the one, of the one of the best chapters in it, so I'm going to give it to you free of charge. But I think that it needs to be done and it needs to be put out there um, in a way that more people will hear it. If you haven't purchased that book, you need to do it. But not just that, I also want to start with a, with a couple of statements about Lee. You've got General Sedgley saying that Robert E. Lee is the worst American. You've got Alan Gelzo running around saying the same thing, David Blight and others on the left. All these people are on the left. Sedgley's on the left. It's embarrassing that Prager U, a quote-unquote conservative outlet, would put Sedgley out there talking about the war because he is a woke leftist. This is what he is. One of the things that Sedgley said that was really funny, he said that you know Lee committed uh, treason, and that I'm going to read a direct statement from his book. Not just that Lee committed treason, but this direct statement, because it's so stupid, it deserves a mention. Eleven southern states seceded to protect and expand an African-American slave labor system. I'm willing to accept the results of a free democratic election. They illegally left the United States, and I'm paraphrasing this. Not just illegally, they also did it violently. Together, they formed a new confederacy, in contradiction to the U.S. Constitution. Now, what does he do here? He cites Article 1, Section 10. In contradiction to the U.S. Constitution. Now, you can't contradict the U.S. Constitution if you're no longer in the United States government, which these states were not in the U.S. government once they left the Union. Now, 11 slave southern states uh, seceded to protect and expand an African-American slave labor system. Well, that's not true. Virginia didn't do that. North Carolina didn't do that. Tennessee didn't do that. Arkansas didn't do that. And you could even throw in here Missouri, Kentucky, some of the other states that he's not counting within the within the Confederacy because they were, their secessions were disputed. But we know that North Carolina and Virginia explicitly rejected slave, uh, a secession. I'm sorry. Re explicitly rejected secession while the states of the Deep South left. So is that, I mean, there's no evidence that these states even did that. They, they left the Union because Lincoln called up 75,000 troops to put down the quote-unquote rebellion, which wasn't really a rebellion because they were out of the Union. Article 1, Section 10 only applies if you're in the Union still. I mean, I, I go over this in my American Constitutions course. But these states seceded through democratically elected conventions. Right? I mean, so the voice of the people of the states was democratic. They weren't against a democratic election. They were in favor of a democratic election. And for all these people running around saying, well, we need to have the majority rule. Lincoln only got 39% of the popular vote. So was it really democratic? I mean, yes, the Electoral College elected Lincoln. 
So all these people say, we've got to have a majority rule. Electoral college is stupid. Well, it's the only reason Lincoln became president. So I, I love this stupid argument, but I, I want to say this about, um, I love this stupid argument because it shows stupidity. I want to say this about um, Lee, and are you going to listen to Ty Se- General Sedgley, who really hasn't done anything remarkable in his military career or in his academic career. He's written a bunch of books for West Point, including the West Point uh, Guide to Gender and uh, Warfare, I think it was, was entitled. Or are we going to listen to Dwight Eisenhower, who was the general of the army, president of the United States, who said that Robert E. Lee, Washington, Franklin, and Lincoln were the four greatest Americans ever? Who are we going to listen to? General Eisenhower, general of the army, a five-star general, or General Sidgley, who is um, nothing really compared to Eisenhower. This is what White Eisenhower said about Robert E. Lee in 1960. Now, Sidgley said, yeah, he's been uh, brainwashed by the lost cause myth. Uh, Eisenhower really knew the whole story. He wouldn't say this. Maybe, or maybe he actually recognized what Lee was. Eisenhower said, General Robert E. Lee was, in my estimation, one of the supremely gifted men produced by our nation. He believed unswervingly in the constitutional validity of his cause, which until 1865 was still an arguable question in America. That's 100% true. I mean, there's nothing false about that statement. That states could secede from the Union was openly discussed many times, North and South. The founding generation considered it a real possibility, which is why they favored the Constitution. I mean, you go back and you look at... Well, the other funny thing, you go back and you look at the debates leading to, to ratification of the Constitution, there, were, there was a, a statement made over and over again that we have to do this or we're going to have disunion. Okay, so secession was certainly possible. One of the other things that I think Sajid Lee does is really funny. He cites Ellis, Joseph Ellis, as an authoritative source on the founding generation. I don't know if Sajid Lee has ever read a real book on the founding generation or if he's read, you know, Joseph Ellis' popular history. And Ellis has his own problems with telling lies. He was a poised and inspiring leader, true to the high trust reposed in him by millions of his fellow citizens. He was thoughtful yet demanding of his officers and men, forbearing with captured enemies, but ingenious, unrelenting, and personally courageous in battle, and never disheartened by reverse or obstacle. Through all his many trials, he remains selfless, almost to a fault, and unfailing in his faith in God. Taken together, he was as noble as a leader and as a man, and unsullied as I read the pages of our history. From deep conviction, I shall simply say this. A nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul. Indeed, to the degree that present-day American youth will strive to emulate his rare qualities including his devotion to this land as revealed in his painstaking efforts to help heal the nation's wounds once the bitter struggle was over, we in our own time of danger in a divided world will be strengthened and our love of freedom sustained. That's what Dwight Eisenhower said about Robert Lee. What about Franklin Roosevelt? This is what Roosevelt said on June 12, 1936. I am very happy to take part in this unveiling of the statue of General Robert E. Lee. All over the United States, we recognize him as a great leader of men, as a great general, 
but also all over the United States, I believe that we recognize him as something much more important than that. We recognize Robert E. Lee as one of our greatest American Christians and one of our greatest American gentlemen. That's Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, and you can find statements about this from presidents all over after postbellum. You know, T- Teddy Roosevelt admired Lee. Even Booker T. Washington said, well, black Southerners, this is what Sigley says in his book, Frederick, there are black Southerners that were against these things. Really? We know in Mississippi there was a black member of the legislature that supported Confederate monuments. Now, he was doing it for several reasons, but he supported them. We know Booker T. Washington supported them. So, I mean, is Sajuli stretching the truth? Absolutely. Now, I want to read this piece that I wrote in 2018. I wrote it. It's in my book, Southern Scribblings, and it gets to the heart of the Elizabeth Pryor faux pas that Sedgley says in his book, Calling Pryor the Greatest of All Lee Biographers. Um, because I take Pryor apart in this piece, and I also take apart the Twitter historians, which I would consider Ty Sedgley to be just slightly worse than. I mean, I say that because the Twitter historians, many of them are better historians than Sedgley. And that's not saying much. But um, he's worse than them. So let me read this piece. In June 2017, The Atlantic published a hit piece on Robert E. Lee titled The Myth of the Kindly General Lee. The article made the rounds on, the, on leftist echo chamber social media accounts and quickly found favor with the popular, popular leftist Twitter historians, a collection of distinguished professors, some of without a substantial publication record, who like to trumpet their status as actual historians when amateurs propose a lost cause version of Southern history in the Civil War. It's since been paraded by these actual historians as conclusive proof in the conclusive popular article on the fiction of a person who never existed. That's in quotes. The irony, of course, is that this piece was written by an amateur, Adam Sewer, who has the same credentials as David Barton, Dinesh D'Souza, Brian Kilmeade, Bill O'Reilly, or Tanishi Coates, meaning none. That doesn't matter. What matters to these Twitter historian brigade is that Sewer has the correct position on Lee. By the way, so did the conservatives Barton, D'Souza, Kilmeade, and O'Reilly. A recent dust-up between Mississippi senatorial candidate Chris McDaniel and the Twitter historian brigade nicely illustrates the groupthink mentality of the actual historians in the Twitter brigade. McDaniel stated it was the truth that Lee, quote, was one of the most decorated soldiers, was the most decorated soldier in the U.S. Army. He was a man of unimpeachable integrity. Lincoln offered him command of the Union Army, but Lee refused only because his loyalty was to Virginia. Lee opposed both secession and slavery, and yet to the historically illiterate left, a man who opposed both secession and slavery has come to symbolize both slavery and secession. Now, end quote. I continue. McDaniel made a mistake calling Lee the most decorated soldier in the U.S. Army. That would be have been Winfield Scott, the only man other than George Washington to achieve the rank of lieutenant general in the antebellum period. Scott, whoever did call Lee the finest soldier he ever knew, and Lee earned his reputation as the indefatigable Lee in the 1840s during the Mexican War, long before the bloody conclave of the 1860s. In other words, Lee was not the most decorated soldier, but he was certainly one of the most respected. I mean, look, one of the most respected. I mean, there were others. You know, Lee wasn't stretching the truth here with McDaniel. I'm, I'm giving the, the Twitter brigade their, their due here. But the rest of the statement contains elements of truth. Regardless, the Twitter brigade pounced on the amateur McDaniel in, in nothing short of an apoplectic rage. 
These gatekeepers of acceptable thought dissected McDaniel's statement line by line and offered what are now predictable cliches and platitudes. Lee was a white supremacist and a traitor who explicitly supported slavery by leading the Army of Northern Virginia against the Union. These actual historians, knowingly or unknowingly, often regurgitate Seward's Atlantic diatribe while advancing a narrative that is saturated with ahistorical and often hypocritical, hypocritical presentism. And I'll say this, Sidulus says, I'm not a presentist. I'm not a presentist. Well, yes, he is. Take, for example, Lee's position on slavery. Lee could certainly never be confused for an abolitionist. I mean, this is true. And, and you know, one thing Sidulus does is he says, well, you know, I'm going to take apart Lee's position. I mean, look, I'm not going to say Lee was an abolitionist. He wasn't. Was he a white supremacist? Yeah. So was everybody in the United States in the 80s. You can't find, I bet you couldn't find more than a couple of thousand people in the U.S. that weren't, including abolitionists in the 1850s. Like most Americans, not just Southerners of his day, he believed the abolitionists to be dangerous reformers, bent on destroying the peace and security of the United States. This is also true. The majority of Americans believe this in the 1850s. Not just a small segment of the South, these, these people sitting in these rooms in the South, these abolitionists we got to get them. This is the majority of the American population. We know this because in the 1850s, the Democrat Party made it a essential plank of their presidential platform, right? So we know that they, this is the party that won the elections, that controlled the Congress, that controlled the executive branch. So the majority of Americans believe this. Abolitionists ran out of town in many northern states, and the rigid pro-slavery ideology that most people associate with the South was born in the 18th century Massachusetts and Connecticut, which is entirely true. Just read Larry Ty's Pro-Slavery. Takes it all the way back to 1701 in New England. But does that make Lee pro-slavery? There's no evidence that he shared the same positions as Thomas Dew, William Harper, or James Henry Hammond. Lee held the dominant view of race relations in America in the antebellum period. His 1856 letter, both condemning slavery as a moral and political evil, while concurrently insisting that African Americans were racially inferior and at that point not suited to freedom, would not have been shocking or debatable to almost anyone at the time, North or South. Just two years later, Abraham Lincoln made similar statements in the now famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Virtually all of the founding generation held similar views, as did leftist heroes like John Muir of Sierra Club fame. Even Harriet Beecher Stowe made racist statements in both the antebellum and postbellum periods. 100% true. So, where is Lee different? I mean, this is the question you have to ask Sidrally or these other morons on the Twitter brigade. Okay, so if this is the case, where is Lee different? Reading the book, reading Sidrally's thinly veiled polemic and Mia Culpa, which, I mean, it's, it's mostly, uh, this is me, this is me, this is I, this is I, this is what I think, this is my opinion. Most of it never backed up by anything, just his opinion. So where is Lee different? If this is the case, if you're going to say Lee had all these views, well then what we need to do is tear down every single statue to every single American who lived before, say, 1975. And this is the goal. Trust me. This is the goal. Why is Lee held to a different standard? Simple. Virtue signaling on the part of the Twitter brigade creates followers and advances careers. It's the same case with Sidula. He's virtue signaling. Oh, gosh. I mean, I want to be on TV, so this is what I'm going to do. You want to talk about saying something that's unpopular? Say you admire Robert E. Lee. I mean, McDaniel did it. You're not going to get a tenured position by doing that. 
You're not going to get advancements in careers by doing that. You won't become an Ivy League professor by praising Lee or by innocently offering a balanced appraisal of the man. The mob requires obedience to acceptable thought. It is they, not the lost causes, who become boxed into a myth. Lee, of course, becomes a de facto, became a de facto slave owner when his father-in-law, George Washington Park Custis, died in 1857. De facto, not de jure, because his wife was a legal owner. Right? Both Sewer and the Twitter Brigade consider this period to be the definitive example of Lee's position on race and slavery, and both rely on a misreading and distorted interpretation of Elizabeth Brown Pryor's description of Lee in her Lincoln Prize-winning book, Reading the Man, as evidence of Lee's cruelty. So, I'm going to get into this, okay? Now, Lee did require Custis's former slaves to work once he became the executor of the will, something they had not done in years. He also hired them out to other plantations in an attempt to make Arlington solvent. Custis left the estate in terrible shape, both physically and financially. Sewer and the Twitter Brigade cite this as partial evidence of Lee's inhumanity in an attempt to break up families. One Twitter Brigade historian actually suggested Lee broke up families by selling them off. That never happened. Lee did separate family members in the hiring out process, but he never sold a single slave. Lee was in a difficult situation. In order to keep Arlington and not sell it off, he had to get out of debt. In order to get out of debt, he had to make the estate profitable, and doing so required that the Custis slaves be forced to work either at Arlington or on neighboring plantations, something they did not want to do and openly resisted. Now, let me take it. I, mean, I say this. This is understandable based on Arlington tradition and Custis's longstanding promises of freedom and his labor practices. It's understandable. I mean, anybody looking to say, yeah, I mean, you haven't worked for, you don't want to? Nobody wants to do this. So Lee was in a difficult position here. The slaves were also in a difficult position. They didn't want to do this stuff. Looking at it from 2021, we can all say, yeah, this is terrible. It's a terrible position for anybody involved in this. But manumission had been made illegal in Virginia, and so to criticize Lee for not immediately freeing Custis's former slaves lacks historical understanding and context. Even prior states, quote, Virginia law made this immediate emancipation difficult, but the law had been circumvented before at Arlington. In other words, Lee possibly could have broken the law, but it was not easy to do. All of the hand-wringing then concerning Lee's handling of the estate is based on pure speculation on what he could have done differently and, frankly, what the courts may have allowed based on modern conceptions of justice. It's also understandable for Lee to want to save Arlington, his wife's birthright, but the Twitter Brigade only seeks to understand one side and condemn the other. That is opinion, not history. The job of a historian, and I'm, I'm saying this now, is to understand both sides. And this is not what, what Sigilee is trying to do. It's not what the Twitter Historian Brigade is trying to do. None of them. This is why it's all so stupid on their part. A Virginia court finally forced Lee to sell off portions of Arlington in 1862 in order to meet the financial requirements of the Custis estate and free the slaves. The Southern legal system was complex. Even Pryor describes Lee's actions at this point in fairly sympathetic terms. Determined to uphold his trust... Lee used his own funds on the sale of land to accomplish all of GWP Cuss's exacting requirements. He also tried to help some of the freedmen hire their labor and resisted attempts by the white community in the Pamunkey region to keep them in bondage. Both Sewer and the Twitter Brigade also claimed to be a fact that Lee had at least three slaves whipped and their wounds washed with brine to inflict pain. Sewer goes so far as to, so far as to believe that Lee was at the whipping and ordered a more brutal job. This is at minimum debatable and probably a lie. In 
1866, a former slave named Wesley Norris gave an interview to the National Anti-Slavery Standard where he described the whipping in question. Norris, a cousin, and his sister ran away from Arlington in 1859 and were subsequently recaptured after Lee offered a substantial bounty. According to Norris, Lee ordered them whipped and tortured before hiring them out further south. The story is initially picked up by the abolitionist press in 1859 and then again after Norris gave his interview in 1866. The first articles appeared in the New York Journal in June 1859, just a few months before John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Lee publicly refused to answer the charge against him and did not directly comment on it privately, telling his son that whole business left has left me an unpleasant legacy. If Lee was so vindictive, why would it be an unpleasant legacy? Prior to not include this last statement in the discussion of the event, but even she suggested that these journal articles were, quote, exaggerated. They were exaggerated. She certainly believes Norris, however, and asserts that every part of his story can be verified. Not quite. Norris gave the interview in two in Pryor's words to spell the notion that Lee was a kind and humane slave owner. She thinks Norris had nothing to gain by the interview. This may be true, but the newspaper that published the story in 1866 absolutely did. Historians, not just lost cause neo-Confederates, have long questioned the validity of abolitionist accounts of slavery, particularly when slave interviews were filtered through abolitionists who could take liberty with the information. There was a wonderful article, article written about this in the 1980s, looking at uh, books like 12 Years a Slave and saying, you know, how much of this can we actually say is true or how much of it was made up to push an agenda? They can't verify most of this stuff. They were often purposely sensationalized and written for a sympathetic audience and were by no means nonpartisan. The Norris account was published on the one-year anniversary of Lincoln's assassination, certainly as an attempt to draw attention to Lee's character and to validate the righteous cause myth of the war. Pryor even contradicts herself by admitting that the whipping itself cannot be validated and that Norris carried no scars from such a violent event. And Lee twice denied it happened later in life. Whom are we to believe? Why would Lee lie in a private letter to his son in 1859? We had nothing to lose. In either case, it is not a definitive fact, either as either Sewer or the Twitter Brigade claims, that Lee either, one, had the slaves viciously whipped or, and tortured, or two, that he was there for the event, if it happened at all. To claim either as a fact is to distort the record for purely partisan reasons, something the Twitter Brigade constantly chirps against when Lee is described as a Christian gentleman, but is more than willing to do if it supports their position. Was Lee a traitor? Next to Lee being a white supremacist, this is the most common charge leveled against him. Lee opposed nullification and secession his entire career. His father was a firm Federalist, and Lee never showed any hint of dissent from this position during his life. His oath in 1825 after leaving West Point required him to, quote, solemnly swear or firm, as the case may be, that I will support the Constitution of the United States, to bear true allegiance to the United States of America, and to serve them honestly and faithfully against all their enemies or opposers whatsoever. Lee did not resign his commission until after Lincoln had called for 75,000 troops to put down the rebellion, and the people of Virginia seceded from the Union. In the mind of most men of the Upper South, Lincoln's question to use force to crush secession amounted to a violation of the Constitution and made him an opposer, an enemy of the states, the them in Lee's oath. The Twitter Brigade claims this constituted a violation of his oath. Lee believed he was defending it by refusing to take up arms against his home, his family, and his state. What could be more noble? One Twitter Brigade historian stated that, quote, one does not oppose secession, then take such a dramatic action to fight for secession. Lee wrestled with his decision to side with Virginia over the Union, as did many Southerners. 
To argue otherwise is to show complete ignorance of secession winter, and for that matter, least painful decision. Even Pryor, whom all the Twitter brigade loves to cite, agrees, quote, This poignant moment, when a strong, steadfast man paced and prayed in despair, is a scene worthy of Shakespeare, precisely because it so palpably exposes the contradiction in his heart. Lee was unequivocally opposed to secession, right to the point of making the decision to resign from the army and side with Virginia. But this Twitter historian goes further. He argues that, quote, Lee wanted to protect Virginia, the South, and its institutions. And by its institutions, he means slavery. Except Lee never once defended slavery during the war. What did Lee suggest the men of Virginia were fighting for? This is what he wrote in September of 1861. Keep steadily in view of the great principles for which you contend and to manifest to the world your determination to maintain them. The safety of your homes and the lives of all you hold dear depend on your courage and exertions. Let each man resolve to be victorious in the right of self-government. Liberty and peace shall find him a defender. Obviously, Lee intended the right of self-government, liberty and peace to mean slavery, slavery, and slavery. And without question, the safety of your homes and the lives of all you hold dear meant slavery and more slavery. Why? Because obviously every Southerner who had his body blown apart by cannon shot did so because they either wanted to own slaves or did own slaves. The arch-neo-Confederate historian James McPherson, who, by the way, Sidgerly cites often, had this to say about Southern motivation. Quote, The concepts of Southern nationalism, liberty, self-government, resistance to tyranny, and other ideological purposes, all of a rather abstract quality. But for many Confederate soldiers, these abstractions took a concrete, visceral form the defense of home and hearth against an invading enemy. Lee would have agreed, but according to the Twitter Brigade, there could be no other explanation other than slavery, the historical record notwithstanding. And what about the post-war Lee? This is something that, of course, Sidgerly gets into, as do all these other Twitter historians. It has become fashionable to attach Lee to the Ku Klux Klan. Both Sewer and the Twitter Brigade suggest that Lee supported the Klan and turned a blind eye to Klan activities in both Virginia and Washington College, where Lee assumed the role of president after the war. Pryor is often cited to reinforce the argument, but clearly neither Sewer nor the Twitter Brigade read anything she wrote on the matter. The Lexington Freedmen's Bureau often complained that local residents harassed African Americans in the community and charged Lee students at Washington College with attempting to sexually assault unwilling colored girls. One letter, one letter, is used as evidence that students at Washington College formed a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan to scare blacks and whites alike with notices depicting skeletons, coffins, and black crepe. When did one letter become overwhelming evidence of anything? I mean, this is a question of stories. So I have one letter saying this happened. When did that become, I mean, when is that conclusive evidence? The fact remains that Lee often took action against racial violence. On one occasion, a former Freedmen's Bureau teacher named E.C. Johnson was bullied after a skating party and resulted in a melee. What Pryor and the Twitter Brigade leave out is that Johnson perpetuated the violence by pulling his pistol on a young boy and threatened to kill him for the simple act of taunting the man. Northern newspapers picked up the story, and according to the faculty minutes of Washington College, Lee dismissed the students involved. Just prior to this, Lee dismissed a student who admitted to pistol-whipping an African-American during an altercation. When the son of a local judge was shot by an African-American after an altercation, several Washington College students participated in vigilante activities aimed at lynching. The Freedmen's Bureau contacted Lee to warn him that such activities would be met with a military response. Pryor writes, quote, Lee had sent out advisories forbidding his students to take part in these activities, and in both instances, Lee promised Army and city officials that these, those participating would be penalized. That's not what Sewer and the Twitter Brigade argue. Sewer, quote, Lee was 
indifferent to crimes of violence towards blacks carried out by his students. And one Twitter brigade historian, quote, Lee turned a blind eye towards and did not punish the students involved and never responded to any of the charges or cooperated the Bureau to investigate. Of course, Pryor contradicts herself just two sentences later by claiming that Lee, quote, at best gave ambiguous signals and suggesting that, quote, the number of accusations against Washington College boys indicates that he either punished their racial harassments more laxly than other misdemeanors or turned a blind eye to it. Her evidence? One letter from the same student suggested the college had a Klan chapter. So you've got this one guy saying we've got a Klan chapter and there's this letter saying that Lee didn't do anything about it. So my question then is, which source would be more reliable? The Washington College faculty minutes or a letter from a student to a parent based on hearsay? Which one is more reliable? The faculty minutes from the college or a letter based on hearsay? The Twitter Brigade, clearly the latter, but what can anyone expect from such scholars? Our now infamous Twitter Brigade scholar concludes that the Marble Man myth is an image that has no basis in fact and is easily disproven by the historical record. I mean, this stuff isn't secret, and McDaniel's assessment of Lee flies in the face of all available historical evidence. Using this standard, what does all the available historical evidence evidence tell us? I'll tell you. Lee was a de facto but never a de jure slave owner for roughly five years of his life and for a shade over two years in accordance with the provisions of his father-in-law's will. The slaves should be freed if the estate was solvent or after five years otherwise. Managed the Arlington estate in an attempt to make the property solvent in order to, in order to save it for his wife and family after years of mismanagement. Now, let me say this. Lee, um, there's not a whole lot of evidence that Lee owned slaves directly ever. There is some evidence that he might have after his mother died. But again, it's all there's no proof of really any of this. Um, so this is a really interesting topic. Uh, and he could have. I mean, there's there's some evidence that he might have owned some slaves or at least used slaves. I mean, we know that Grant did as well. Again, Lee is being uh, pillared for, for things that he did that other Southerners and other Americans did as well. Um, he's, he's being pointed to because of his status in the South. This included hiring out slaves to other plantations, but he never sold a single slave or illegally broke up a family through a sale. Lee did free several slave women and children at his wife's insistence before he took control of the estate. And his wife and daughters taught several of the Lee family slaves to read and write, even though Virginia law prohibited it. Mary Custis Lee even entrusted one slave with the keys of the plantation when they were forced to evacuate the property in May 1861. Lee rid himself of the responsibilities in December of 1862, partly with his own money, worked to keep those, these freedmen from bondage after the fact, favored enlisting blacks in the Confederate Army returned from emancipation, and called slavery a moral and political evil. He denied engaging in cruelty three times, once in a private letter in 1859 when he was fully at liberty to speak on the matter, after the abolitionist press attacked his character, and he called executing the Custis will a miserable legacy. Is this the collective work of a pro-slavery ideologue? I leave that up to you. Lee thought nullification illegal, privately argued against secession, anguished over his decision to leave the army, was generally a reluctant Confederate who saw it as his honorable duty to side with his family and state. He wrote he wished Virginia would stay in the Union so he would ha- not have to make a such, such a difficult choice. Had that happened, Lee would have certainly stayed in the United States Army and probably would have accepted Winfield Scott's offer to lead Union forces. Is that the work of a fire eater like William L. Yancey or Robert Barnwell Rhett? 
Lee held views on race that matched what the majority of Americans believed at the time, many, including many prominent Republicans like Benjamin Wade and Abraham Lincoln, and while president of Washington College after the war dismissed students who engaged in racial violence. He did not support the 15th Amendment. He was not alone, even in the North, as New Jersey, Ohio, Oregon, and California all rejected the amendment, but publicly spoke of reconciliation and healing and refused to profit from his fame or have his name attached to the cause that might stir sexual tension. One postbellum observer remarked that Lee was bowed down with a broken heart. Generations of Americans North and South respected Lee. Like Washington, Lee became the symbol holding the sections together. Northerners, like Charles Adams, former Union officer and grandson of John Quincy Adams, admired his honor and integrity. And even in the 1970s, American presidents, both Democrat and Republican, heaped praise on Lee's character. Dwight Eisenhower argued that a nation of men of Lee's caliber would be unconquerable in spirit and soul. Indeed, to the degree that present-day American youth will strive to emulate his rare qualities, we in our own time of danger in a divided world will be strengthened by our love of freedom sustained. I just read that to you earlier on. While Franklin Roosevelt said that the unveiling of a Robert E. Lee statue in Dallas, Texas, since removed by the Enlightened City Council, that we recognize Robert E. Lee as one of our greatest American Christians and one of our greatest American gentlemen. Winston Churchill simply said Lee was the noblest American who ever lived. That is the real Robert E. Lee. This stuff is in secret, to quote this Twitter historian. Perhaps the amateur McDaniel is better equipped to discuss Lee than the actual historians in the Twitter brigade or at the Atlantic. It wouldn't be the first time an amateur has outclassed them. So that's the piece that I wanted to read about Lee, because I think it's important as his book is out and Sedgley is making the rounds and it's becoming a very popular thing that this needed to be put out there again. Now, this is an essay that's in my book, Southern Scribblings. You can get that. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million. Um, and there's 59 other essays about the South and the Southern tradition in it, uh, about Lincoln and others. So it's it's a fun read, and uh, you should pick it up. All right. That said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then. <laughs>